Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to Deeper Well, as recorded by Emmylou Harris on her groundbreaking Wrecking Ball album and written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, David Olney. Revered by those in the know, Olney is a prolific master craftsman who the Los Angeles Times once called the best songwriter you've never heard of and about whom the San Francisco Chronicle observed, in the tradition of Johnny Cash and Tom Waits, only has become a pioneer of the Americana music scene. David was one of the few rockers to emerge from Nashville in the late 1970s and early 80s, where he launched his career with the X-Rays, who are best remembered for an appearance on the televised Austin City Limits. He went on to transform himself into a folk-infused singer-songwriter with a rootsy rock edge, releasing more than two dozen solo albums since 1986. Many of his songs have been recorded by other artists, including Emmylou Harris, who cut Jerusalem Tomorrow, Deeper Well, and 1917. The latter was a duet with Linda Ronstadt, who also recorded her take on David's Women Across the River, a song that's also been covered by the band's Rick Danko. Other artists who've drawn from the Olney songbook include Del McCory, who recorded Queen Anne's Lace, and Connie Britton, who recorded Postcard from Mexico for the hit television series Nashville. The late great Towns Van Zant once wrote, Anytime anyone asks me who my favorite music writers are, I say Mozart, Lightning Hopkins, Bob Dylan, and Dave Olney. David's most recent album is called Don't Try to Fight It, and he can be seen performing and discussing songs every Tuesday on his live streamcast called You Never Know at davidolney.com. You know, we've had people on the show before, like maybe Jim Lauderdale or, or Tom Russell, who are kind of considered songwriters' songwriters. Yeah. Uh, but David Olney might even be like a songwriter's songwriter's songwriter. <laughs> um, just kind of, a, an, kind of under-discovered, but very appreciated Yeah, writer. very very prolific, too. So prolific. Yeah, like almost, I, I think like 30-ish albums when you count the live stuff and, and the studio albums. Um, yeah, but he's one of those guys, he's never written like a monster hit, but he's one of those guys that the greatest songwriters right. revere. I mean, I think about that, Towns Van Zant quote from the intro. I mean, you're yeah. talking about Mozart, Dylan, and David Olney. Yeah, that not not bad company there. Right? Um, it kind of got me wondering, like, do you have anybody who, who you have either listened to or come across who you would consider like an undiscovered gem mm. that that the world doesn't know much about? Yeah, that's a good question. But you're pretty um, into. Well, David Olney. <laughs> okay. Yes, of course. <laughs> I would, I might even say Towns Van Zant, but no, he he's well known enough. Um, actually, you know what? I, I've always loved Buddy Miller. I feel like in recent years he's kind of gotten more of right. the uh, the recognition that he's deserved. But to me, he's he's one of those guys who's just a monster talent, but yeah. not a household name. Um, actually, a couple guys I, I can think of. One is um, in college there was a group called the Vigilantes of Love oh, yeah. out of uh, Athens, uh, Georgia. I played a and show with them actually did back you? in the late 90s. Too. Ah, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's cool. Um, Bill Maloney uh, was the songwriter basically he basically was the group yep. 
Um, and you know, I actually haven't really kept up. I, I, I don't know if he is still doing it. I hope he is because he's one of those guys that I just loved his songwriting. Yeah. I thought, you know, very honest. Yeah. And, and very literate and insightful. And, uh, he's one of the guys that really inspired me to, to get into songwriting. So I would say him, the other guy that pops into my mind, I'm sure there's tons, but the other guy is a, is a guy named Jason White. Um, and he wrote uh, the song Red Ragtop that was a hit for Tim McGraw. Right. And I, I don't think he really wrote any other hits, but that guy, man, he's kind of like a combination Elvis Costello, Bob Dylan, sort of with a country edge. I mean, he was a phenomenal, is a phenomenal songwriter, but he put out, um, I think the, the first album that he put out is one I still go back to all the time, and it's like probably one of my top... 10 favorite songwriting albums wow. ever and it's so i so that's a really long answer to basically say jason yeah, white <laughs> <laughs> that's something to check out um yeah but, but i'm glad for the long answer it gave me some time to think of mine yeah um so you put me on the spot to buy yourself time totally. to think of how to answer your own question yeah that's um, i like that one of my guys is a guy named emmett rhodes um yeah. he's from hawthorne california not too far down the road um uh early mid 70s stuff um kind of did did it in like his mom's basement right um and just a dead ringer for what could have been the beatles records coming after the beatles mm. career stuff sounded super beatlesque I, I heard somebody say that that he had um some of the solo output that maybe they even wished mccartney had written right which I, right I, I take issue with because i think mccartney's solo output was genius too right but emma road stuff was pretty amazing yeah um and then a guy named Shuggy Otis. Oh, yeah. Who um, kind of, you know, uh, people started to take more notice of him in the in the late 90s. Yeah. But like a soul funk uh, kind of pioneer guy from the 70s. Um, really, really cool stuff. Uh, and I think criminally un underappreciated even now. Yeah, for sure. There's also a guy named Stevie Wonder who's written some good songs. Not familiar. Yeah, you should with, check him out. Him. He, yeah. He's really Catchy good. Name? Yeah, it is. It sound, he sounds like a star. Yeah. And I, and I hope he is one day. I, yeah, we can only hope. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's check out David Only. Yep. David, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, I'm glad to be here. I understand that you grew up in Rhode Island. Um, what were some of the early musical influences that you absorbed as a kid that kind of ended up shaping your sensibilities as a songwriter? Well. The uh, first thing was my older brother's record collection, I would say, <laughs> and that I was told not to go near, <laughs> so that any time he was away from home, I would, you know, jump into it pretty seriously, and that included, like, Jimmy Reed and Bill Monroe and just all kinds of, you know, Lead Belly, <laughs> and uh, an odd thing that I had was this uh, paper out on Sunday morning, which I had the whole nobody was awake so i could you know have the town to myself basically <laughs> right and i could just sing as loud as i wanted to hmm. and i thought about it you know years later that that was kind of a big deal to me and i would just sing you know the songs that were on the radio at the time yeah. you know roy orbison songs i mean to you know a nine-year-old kid uh you know singing uh only the lonely or <laughs> crying or something like that was that's probably pretty good that I had a town to myself. I think that would be a little too weird an image for people, especially on a Sunday morning. Right. right. That's and, you know, on the radio, there, there were those songs, the rock songs, and kind of a, it was kind of a golden time for rock and roll to me. Uh, and, and then there was the folk music 
which ended up being a huge kind of influence on mm. me. Yeah. Uh, the the idea of just getting an acoustic guitar and learning a few chords and uh, you know having girls like you <laughs> uh, was it was really attractive to me. <laughs> so that was kind of what was going on. But basically, it's more than that. It's having some way to state your case to mm. the universe. Huh. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and hopefully doing a good enough job of it that the universe will re- respond positively, right. especially yeah. girls. <laughs> especially, <laughs> especially the girl part of the universe. Yeah. Um, well, you've you've spoken before about your uh, relationship with with Bland Simpson, who's an author and a professor and songwriter and and a member of the Red Clay Ramblers. Um, and I, I believe he was fairly influential in kind of getting you into your chosen profession. Talk about um, what role he kind of played in in your development. You know, when I dropped out of college down in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, I got a job working at a candle warehouse. And he came by one day, and I knew him. We, I guess we'd had a math class or something, and he had hmm. just gotten married. This is around 1970, I think. Yeah. And he was looking for work. And, you know, I said, you know, I'll see what I can do. Uh, the idea of me being in charge of hiring and firing, especially and at that period, is a little weird. But <laughs> anyway, it was. He, uh, they said, okay, yeah, well, you can hire him. And he and I would sit out there and, you know, in this warehouse full of candles, <laughs> you know, shipping stuff out, but mostly just talking about music. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I was playing in clubs at that time. And, I, you know, I I wasn't even aware before we started, we started having these conversations that he even played music. <laughs> but then at some point he, he went up to uh, New York and got the, some folks interested in his songs. And that just, you know, blew my mind. He came back and told me what was going on. Yeah. And then he packed all his stuff, and he and his wife moved up to New York. And then a couple of months later, he called me up and said, you know, did I want to play guitar in a band he was putting together? And I was watching this thing sort of come to life and going, wow, you can do that. And uh, anyway, we... He ended up making a record for uh, CBS at that time, right? And I, so I got a kind of glimpse of the inner workings of the Beast. Hmm. And uh, <clears throat> you know, the record didn't do much, and uh, you know, everyone the band broke up, and I went back down to North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, but I'd gotten a glimpse of the Golden City on the Hill. And, <laughs> right. And that, it was ten years before I, you know, was able participate in anything like that again for yeah. wow. but uh that was yeah that was a huge deal to me also he was he's like a really good songwriter hmm. and i learned a lot uh he played piano and so his sort of range of chords was wider than uh mine was i was just kind of a mediocre guitar player hmm. yeah. so i learned a lot of a lot of music from him also I, it was so hard for me to learn the chords of the song that I'd have to have a rehearsal with the band before we had a rehearsal with the band. <laughs> right, right. It's like the remedial reading. You know? <laughs> That's funny. Well, you ultimately ended up in Nashville in the early 1970s, and of course it was a very yeah. different town than it is now. So given that you weren't really a mainstream country songwriter, what initially drew you there? Uh, Chris Christopherson's songs. 
when I, hmm. to me, country music was until Chris Christopherson was just guys in cowboy hats and uh, you know rhinestone suits. <laughs> it just seemed like a very alien thing. Yeah. To me, and I just there's no place for me there. And then this record of Chris Christopherson songs that had the you know help me make it through the night and for the good times. Yeah, me yeah. and Bobby McGee. They were much more universal, and I went, oh, that's something I think I could get my head around. Mm. Uh, I had a couple of friends from uh, North Carolina that lived here, so I knew I had some couches I could crash <laughs> on when I got here. Right. And it was, uh, you know, it was an amazing time that I got a a uh, apartment for like forty five dollars a month. Jeez, wow! Yeah, it was like for for that kind of you know pocket change, you could be in the game. I remember thinking that that I'm in the same business as Charlie Rich or mm. Waylon Jennings. They they right. don't know it, but uh, <laughs> right. I just happen to be riding the bench right now. Yeah, but I felt like I was part of the scene. Yeah and, yeah, and pretty early on, I, you know, met uh, other songwriters. Of course, uh, Richard Dobson, I formed a pretty good friendship with, and uh, he knew Guy Clark and Towns Van Zant, and got to know those guys, and Rodney Crowell. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it was just these were people that I would see. You yeah, know, that's a good group to find yourself in. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it was like. Uh, you know, at the time I used to play pinball machines a whole lot, and instead of being on the outside of the machine pushing buttons, and I was in the machine itself. Yeah. You know, it was, <laughs> yeah. it was very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, long before Nashville was regarded as the musically diverse city that it's known as now, you formed this rock band called the X-Rays that recorded a couple yeah. albums and, and made a memorable appearance on Austin City Limits in 1982. Um, yeah. What kind of scene was there in Nashville for what you guys were doing at that time? There wasn't one. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was... Uh, as I recall, there was one band called Peace and Quiet hmm. that were kind of studio musicians and, and really good players. Uh, right. But it, it, a rock band named Peace and Quiet, <laughs> you already see the problem. Right. <laughs> right. And, uh, but um, there was this club, uh, Springwater, that was this beer dive near Centennial Park. Yeah. And uh, Springwater was just um, the first time we played, uh, it was like about 10, just besotted, you know, blind, drunk people. (laughs) And they were sitting there, uh, and, you know, to me it was a show, and I'm going, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. They're going, what? What are you talking about? (laughs) That's amazing. But it caught on, and pretty soon, you know, the place was packed. We'd play there at least once a month, and it just ended up this, you know, Vile little uh, beer joint became a, a musical center. It was it wow. was really really fun. Yeah, yeah. Is that place still there? Yeah, it sure is. I've, it's been a while since I've been in. It's. I mean, it, they really did something good, and they didn't muck it up. They they were glad to have a band play there. It was a guy named Terry Cantrell who ran it, and he later had a club called Cantrell's mm-hmm. over yeah. Division. Right, right. Uh, and he was a great guy to work with, and you know, people. I think 
people were kind of surprised at the, the sort of notoriety that was happening to the club. Right, right. From music. And at some point, uh, I said, Terry, you know, we're getting all these people and they're all drinking a lot of beer. Uh, you know, can we charge a dollar at the door? <laughs> and uh, he said, okay, thank you, can do it. And it nearly started a riot. Wow. <laughs> I think uh, we won the battle. I think we even we went up to uh, $2 <laughs> in our prime. <laughs> but people were, I remember a guy coming in and going, Dave. What's a poor working stiff like me going to do having to pay a dollar color charge? Right. I'm saying, man, you drink a dollar up within 15 minutes after coming through the door. Right. You know, just... You, you got to save up for that $45 rent, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, in 1986, you released your debut solo album, Eye of the Storm, which included several yeah. songs that have become staples of your catalog, uh, including Queen Anne's Lace, If It Wasn't for the Wind, and Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. And if I was winter dying And knew the virgin spring Gladly to your warmth I would surrender To melt the snows and set the rivers free But I am standing on the mountain Longing to be near Heaven is too high, I cannot reach you I'm as close as I uh, talk about the process of writing and recording that first solo effort after having been part of a band for a while. Yeah, um, I was, you know, just at loose ends and kind of uh, questioning whether, um, you know, I could do this. Hmm. The last guitar player that I'd had in the X-rays was a guy named Joe Fleming. Right. And he had a home studio. It was a, I don't, I can't remember the name of it. It was a Japanese made, you recorded on videotape or something. It was, hmm. it was very funky, but it worked. Right. And uh, I was able to go down there and just, this was at his house. And, uh, you know, you know, put these songs down. And he was a very sympathetic person to work with and would come up with cool guitar parts. And on that also was uh, Tommy Goldsmith, and I think he was actually kind of the producer. And would, we would just feel in our way. And, I, and yeah. when I listen to that uh, Eye of the Storm, I can hear how tentative I was. Huh. And it, it's kind of, it's cool to me. And, and yeah. a song like Battery Night and Sunday Morning uh, is kind of an odd song, but it's, you know, it's a strong song, and that it, that it came out at all uh, is very beautiful to me. Hmm. Yeah, there's there's one song in particular I wanted to ask you about from that record, um, Titanic, uh, which was written from the perspective of the iceberg. Um, talk a little bit about that song in terms of where the idea came from and, and how you shaped it into its final form. Yeah, um, after the band, the X-Rays disbanded, I was really worried about, you know, how am I going to make a living uh, doing music, and I thought, well, I've got to figure out how to write a uh, a popular country song. And I started going to writers' nights and listening to what people were writing about, and listening to country radio. and And I was okay. I got to learn how to do this. And every time I'd sit down to write a country song, it was like my 
my uh, psyche or whatever would just rebel against it. Huh. And I would get these strange, weird songs. And one <laughs> of them was the Titanic, you know, a whole song sung by an iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard one to pitch. You know, it wasn't like I'm going to be able to pitch that to George Jones or anything. <laughs> right. Is but that I, the I, only iceberg-centric song that, that you know of? <laughs> yeah, I think I kind of cornered the market. I mean, it was just a strange thing, and there was no really commercial way it was going to work. Yeah. But I think whatever in, inside me that is the core of me was saying, you can't screw around with trying to write country songs. You're not very good at it. Hmm. Uh, you know, write these things that you write, and get comfortable with that yeah makes uh, sense you know a guy a guy that i knew at that time uh, was don schlitz mm, yeah and he wrote the gambler right and and it was like uh you know he was set from then on and, and that was a bit difficult for me to comprehend <laughs> and accept i and don is a friend and i i've talked to him about this how hard that was for me to accept you know that he could become that successful but he was someone to me that was a a really good country writer yeah but that's what he wrote you know that's when he he was writing those songs when he was writing his best when i tried to write a country song i was not writing my best well your sophomore solo album deeper well was released in 1989 uh, featuring the memorable title track and that song was resurrected a few years later on Emilio Harris's groundbreaking Wrecking Ball album. Found some love and I found some money. Found that blood would drip from the honey. Found I had a thirst that I could not quell. Looking for the water from a deeper well. Not only is the Emmy Lou version pretty sonically different, but she also includes lyrics that were not part of your original version, which is kind of a reminder that, you know, songs are not necessarily static things. Um, talk about how she ended up recording it and, and give us some insight into how it was kind of stretched and, and shaped into the form as folks might know it from her version. Um, she called, uh, and I knew her, of course, because she'd done... Uh, Jerusalem tomorrow, but she called and said that she wanted to record Deeper Well, and I'm, you know, great. And they, I've heard record, uh, you know, where they were in the studio trying to do it, my version. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, it sounds great to me, but uh, it's it wasn't near as good, I think, as what they came up with hmm. uh, for her later on. And she you know, worked and worked at it and called me up and said, listen, I'm having trouble getting to the center of the song. Would you mind if I wrote some verses that were uh, from a woman's point of view more? And I said, no, you know, I'd be honored. Yeah. And uh, so she did, and then I guess uh, in the process of of recording it, uh, Daniel Lenoir wrote a verse. Yeah. So uh, at some point, you know, uh, this is this is the way it came out, and I heard it. With the, you know, that's remarkable. Mm. And you know, I, I you know a little bit. It's giving up control of the song, but it was worth doing. No. Uh, it got that song out there into the world. 
mm. in a way that you know worked well for me. Yeah, right? sure. and it wasn't it wasn't the case of someone. Oh, uh, you know, there wasn't anything underhanded about it. Of sure. course, with Emmy and it's with Emmy Harris. You know, that's not the deal. <laughs> right. It's just her trying to get trying to get to the center of the song. Right. And I'm very grateful to her. Yeah. Well, you know, as as we move into the 1990s, you released the album Roses, which featured some great songs such as Millionaire and the title track. The old oak tree began to shudder, but he held his ground like some old soldier. His ancient pride was burnt and shaken, but something deep inside did wake him. Raised his limbs just like Moses and blossomed roses. Um, what can you tell us about that song, Blossom Roses? Um, I started, I got, um, see, Melissa Etheridge played at the Bluebird, hmm. and I got the job of opening for her. Nice. And I played Women Across the River, and I think she really liked that song. And she was getting, she was, doing a tour and uh, needed someone to open up, you know, and a, a solo act is cheap and, you know, uh, so I got it. And uh, so I was on the road and it was just a really kind of brutal traveling. She, Melissa and her band and her crew were treated me great. Yeah. But the driving and everything was just, I would play the gig, uh, go and get paid half the time i couldn't even stay to hear her play it. Hmm. i had to get back to the motel and get some sleep and just wake up at like four in the morning and start driving to the next wow. uh place yeah and it was just hard 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 and by the time i um, played in st louis and i started writing roses in a motel in st louis and i was burnt out basically and i just I sat down and I thought I want a song that has a miracle in it, hmm. and it turned out that the miracle, besides the oak tree uh, blossoming roses, was that there were no humans in it. Huh. I, was, I was pretty <laughs> sick of my species at that time. Uh, and I think the next night we played in Chicago, and I think I finished the song up in a uh, in a the motel in Chicago. Yeah. Wow. Huh. It's interesting you talk about kind of becoming sick of your own species, and it, and it makes me think back to maybe that's what it takes to identify with the iceberg that brought down the Titanic, um, in that you're you're identifying a little bit more with the inanimate objects outside of of what happens to the human race. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I, you know uh, how those things get started. If I knew what it was that got those kinds of songs started, I would write as many of them as I could. But they, <laughs> Those particular kind of songs just kind of appear. They're, they're, there's kind of a miraculous quality to them. Jerusalem yeah. uh, Tomorrow is the same thing. That You write the song and then go, well, how in the hell am I going to play this? <laughs> you know, Jerusalem Tomorrow, you know, is like a religious song, except it isn't. Instead of calling down fire from above, he just gets real quiet and talks about love. And I'll tell you something funny. He didn't want nobody's money. 
I'm not exactly sure what this all means But it's the damnedest thing I swear I've ever seen You know, I remember finishing that and going, what am I going to do with this? Right, right. And it turns out that they're the songs that were the most, I don't know, kind of reveal what I am the most. Well, yeah, you find out you're going to be talking about them 30 years later in an interview. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, I want to ask you about your 1994 album, Live in Holland, which I believe is the first live record you issued. And you've gone on to release a good bit of live material, and a remarkable number of those live albums seem to be recorded in Holland. Um, tell us how you yep. managed to carve out such a dedicated fan base there. Little by little, I just kept going back there and, uh, you know, building up the following. Yeah, the yeah. Dutch are really open to, I mean, that's their heritage of being open to outside ideas. Hmm. And they they were just treated me wonderfully, yeah. and those tours were so nice. Uh, you play, I play in these bars. I still do it. Play in these bars that have a stage, and you know, I look out in the audience, and it looks like a Rembrandt painting. You know, there's that kind of brown <laughs> setting and that right. weird light, yeah. and the, the, there's a kind of a Dutch face, it's kind of roundish, hmm. but it's very. Uh, I don't know. It's they're. they're they're very homey people. Yeah, right. And, you know, finish a set and go out and sit at the bar and have a beer with, with uh, you know, the customers and stuff mm-hmm. and the fans. It's really a very intimate way to get to know people. That's cool. And just yeah. over the years, it just built up, and it's like a second home to me now. Mm. Well, the closing track on Live in Holland was Vincent's Blues, which appeared in a studio version on your next record, High, Wide, and Lonesome. The stars are shining bright With a light that never ends Every man's a stranger Every stranger is a friend Vincent knows the feeling He's been talking to the wind um, And there's a line in that song that says He's gone to see the world before the world passes by And, you know, that line kind of makes me think about the way that you seem drawn to historical subjects and, and historical themes in your writing Do you think part of a songwriter's job is to function as a as a preservationist or to maybe capture a bit of the world in song before it passes by? I don't know if it's his job. I mean, it's so much of songwriting, and I think probably writing in general, you're not really in control of it in some way. Hmm. I mean, you are and you aren't. Uh, if you're a commercial writer, then I think you're more in control of it. You say, I'm going to write about this subject, and I'm going to do it with this uh, artist in mind that's trying to get the, this person to sing it. Right. And some of the greatest songs, I mean, that's what the you know the Gershwins did. That's yeah. what uh, Irving Berlin did. I mean, it's it's not a crass way of writing. This. The, some really great songs have been written that way. Yeah, It's just not the way I can do it. Yeah. That particular song, Vincent's Blues, it came about because a tour that I was on in Holland fell through, and I was kind of stranded in Amsterdam for a few days. And I thought I'd go get some culture. And I thought, oh, well, I'll go to the Van Gogh Museum. 
Yeah. I knew Towns was, uh, you know, a big fan of Vincent. And I think, you know, I thought, well, if it's good enough for Towns, it's good enough for me. But I didn't know anything <laughs> really about the paintings. And I went and spent a day looking at them. I said, okay, I did that. I'm going to go to another one tomorrow. And then this voice kind of went off. No, go back to that one. Hmm. So for the next four days, I went back and kept looking at the same pictures. And then the last day, I just took a notebook and I would stand in front of, uh, there was a picture of a pair of boots that he painted. Right. And I wrote a verse about that. And there was a, a one about the <clears throat> the a uh, sparrow flying over the wheat field. I just try to jot down some lines. Yeah. And I didn't even have a tune in my head. I think it started out as kind of a blues song. Yeah. But uh, at the end of that time, I was heading for Nuremberg, Germany, where my wife is from, her family's from. And when I got on the train, there was this little kid on the train, and I could see his mother on the platform, and, you know, that this kid was... was going on this long trip by himself. He couldn't have been more than 10 years old. Yeah. I thought, you know, he just seemed so confident. And <laughs> and his mom was not frightened, but, you know, she was a mom. She wasn't, you know, it was an emotional scene, and sure. I seemed to be a fly on the wall watching this. And, yeah. And it just seemed to kind of uh, fold into the, to the paintings I've been looking at in a mm. nice way. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, speaking of, of historicity in, in writing, your 1999 album, Through a Glass Darkly, is filled with historical characters, um, including the excellent track Dillinger, which is a, a study of famed bank robber and gangster John Dillinger. Well, it's another bleak November day Can't decide to rain or snow But the money's in the bags and they're getting away Heading north Chicago Big gray buildings Little gray men Have a little fun Then we'll do it again All right, says John Dillinger You've never really been classified as a as a confessional type of songwriter but instead you seem to find interesting ways through inanimate objects or through historical characters to kind of explore the human condition. Um, do you think it's, it's an accurate assessment that, that people have generally regarded you as not being necessarily a, a, a deeply personally oriented writer or, or how would you characterize your own approach? I'm not comfortable, uh, you know, opening up the, uh, the secret files and making <laughs> them public. Yeah. Uh, and there's that aspect. And then there's the aspect that, it just seems uh, that other people have done more interesting things. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, I've noticed uh, when I tried to write personally, and I noticed in others, uh, you don't say certain things. Hmm. Um, and I could do that if I if I could create uh, another character. Yeah. Uh, and and I and. To me, that was, you know, I'm everybody that I create in a song. Hmm. It's all, in the end, it all ends up being about me. I think Steve Earle kind of said that somewhere. If you make up the song, it's personal. Right, it still, still comes from you. Assume, you assume the, uh, it's the same way in a dream, and I've often thought 
songs are very similar to dreams, that every character that appears in your dream is some aspect of yourself. Hmm, right. And I think that's the, the way with songs. Yeah. Well, one of the other songs from Through a Glass Darkly that has become a, a David Olney staple is 1917, which Emmylou Harris yeah. and, and Linda Ronstadt recorded as a duet. And, and like Emmylou, Linda has, has revisited your catalog on more than one occasion, recording a, a memorable version of Women Across the River on her Feels yeah. Like Home album back in the 90s. Um, and that song, of course, originally appeared on your on your Deeper Well album. So all these cover versions of your songs that, that we've talked about are things that, you know, you recorded as an artist first. And, and you talked about how you're not really um, the type of writer that, that necessarily thinks about writing songs for other people or, or pitching things to other people, yeah. that you, you sort of know your identity and what you do as your own kind of singer-songwriter. Um once you do kind of have that experience, though, if you, you have an Emmylou Harris, you have a Linda Ronstadt or, or whoever that, that starts picking up on your songs, is it a temptation for you as a writer to, to start having that little voice creep in of, oh, maybe maybe if I guide this one way or this way, maybe maybe it would be good for, for this artist and, and that would be a good thing for me? I'm sure that voice is there, but, uh, you know, you, I try to ignore it. Hmm. I mean, the uh, you know, every now and then I'll I'll hear someone is going to be recording, and I'll send out songs that I think they might be able to do. Yeah, I think. But with with Emmy Lou, I just didn't try to make an assumption about what is the kind of song she would do. I would just try to send her songs that I thought were interesting. Yeah, and let the hopefully something would catch on. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I, it's it's not a, something that I want to get into. It's hard <laughs> enough to find... The hardest thing about songwriting is finding your own voice. Mm. And not just the sound of it, but the way it sounds inside. And uh, that, It took me years and years to do that. Right. And once you get into the business of trying to sound... Trying to, you know, tailor a song after someone else's voice, then I think you're... You're on thin ice. Mm. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, your 2003 album, The Wheel, opens with Big Cadillac, which features both country fiddle and bluesy electric guitars. You're often described as a folky singer-songwriter, but you've explored a good bit of ground on your albums. You know, we talked about you kind of playing across type in Nashville by having a rock band in the early 80s, and you've done everything from folk to blues to rock to doo-wop, and you've had every rootsy influence in between. In terms of genre, uh, how would you describe yourself, or do you even, you know, like take the trouble of describing yourself? You know, to me, I'm totally consistent. You know, hmm. I, these these things come out of me. I don't hear, and uh, you know, I, or I don't think about it. And then when I hear them on a record, I go, uh, you know, how could the person who wrote uh, Women Across the River write Big Cadillac? Right. It doesn't even sound like the same person. Right. <laughs> Writing for me, I just feel lucky when, I, when the song 
uh, you know, reveals itself, mm. and I get it down good. I, it's only after the fact, but I think, you know, this is a rock song, this is a folk song, this is a country song, whatever. Right. I, to me, uh, you know, I'm I'm like absolutely the best David Olney singer <laughs> yeah. in the universe. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. You, you figured out the David Olney sound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I want to ask you about One Tough Town, the title track of your 2007 album. Yeah. Um, the song reimagines Jesus as this traveling entertainer who does great everywhere he goes except for Earth, uh, which he says is One Tough Town. Well, I've been all around this universe. I've seen the best. I've seen. And it's such an interesting uh, song and, and such an interesting idea. I'd love to, to hear where that concept came from. Yeah, there's no short answer to these. Uh, <laughs> coming from New England and, and kind of being absorbed in the South, there's only so much you can be absorbed. I've always felt a bit on the outside. Mm-hmm. I've just been aware that in the end, I, will, you know, I do come from Rhode Island. There's not anything that I'm embarrassed about. Uh, but it, it creates that feeling of being a little bit on the outside looking in. Right. And the other part of that is you're always, at least I used to be, uh, worried about your authenticity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if you're going to sing a cowboy song, you got to wear, you got to ride a horse, and if you're going <laughs> to blah blah blah, all that stuff. Right. And I started thinking about vaudeville performers that their authenticity was the fact that they were vaudeville performers. Hmm. Yeah. That was that was their rodeo, that was their whole thing. And basically their lives were, uh, you know, unless they were big stars, were rooming houses and, and railroad trains. Right, right. But the thing that they did was they were vaudeville performers. And I thought, you know, I've heard somewhere that term... Uh, you know, Baltimore is one tough town, and uh-huh, meaning right. that we're difficult audiences. Yeah, and I just—I wasn't thinking about Jesus. I was just thinking about a comedian, mm. a vaudeville comedian that was uh, whose career was failing. Who was, to me, he was abducted by uh, beings from another planet, mm. and he had the concept that it wasn't just from town to town; it was from planet to planet. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, and that's one of those songs that once you get started, I'm, you know, end up going, where in the, where in the hell is this guy right. going? <laughs> right. And just sort of end up chasing your pen down a piece of paper. Right. You, know? <laughs> you know, it's it, you talk about authenticity as an American songwriter, and, and it really is difficult to spend the time working on your craft and becoming a great songwriter while also learning how to rope a calf drive a semi yeah. and manage a farm you know <laughs> yeah. to to be able to do all those things credibly is almost too tall of an order for any songwriter to manage well every now and then there's someone who does it uh 
Chris Ledoux was the rodeo rider. Right. Real good. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, Don Edwards is a real cowboy. I don't know if you know his music. Yeah. Cowboy singer. I, you know, the I, I've always seen the connection between what I do and, and acting, and I always was kind of uh, extremely curious about uh, drama. Mm-hmm. And we don't expect Dustin Hoffman to actually be a 15-year-old kid out west right. and uh, you know, <laughs> the only survivor of the Battle of Little Bighorn. Right. We also don't expect him to actually be a wino in New York right. or any of the other roles. We don't expect that. But in music, uh, it seems that people kind of do look for that kind of authenticity. In right. a different, they hold it to a different standard. Yeah. And there's no way... You know, there's, like you say, there's no time to do both. <laughs> right. It's hard enough just learning how to play the guitar. And you, you mentioned acting, and, and you had a uh, one of your songs from that One Tough Town album had a notable appearance on a TV show, the TV show Nashville, um, talking about the song Postcard from Mexico, which appeared in a version by Connie Britton's character. in the last few years releasing a handful of EPs as well as some excellent albums including Predicting the Past and When the Deal Goes Down um, and and you mentioned John Hadley but he's one of those names that I see you know popping up on in your work from the last few years and, and you mentioned that he was kind of the first um, guy that you really sort of established a, a co-writing um, relationship with but um, talk about what it is specifically about working with him that, that does work so well? You know, what is it about that, that partnership that, that seems to um, be a fruitful thing for both you guys? I, I, I want to say this right. Not to, uh, when I go in, to me, I'm working with John, and we're trying to get my song. and uh, Because I'm going to be the one that's going to record it. Yeah. Right. That's brought up. So, uh, you know, I kind of 
can say, uh, no, that line doesn't work. Uh, you know, I have kind of veto power. But yeah. what he does, it's it's kind of hard to explain. He he comes to Nashville and stays for about three weeks, and he's got this cabin. And you go out there, and you're just kind of chatting with him about whatever you're thinking about. Yeah. And you say, well, John, I got this little, you know, half of chorus here. And he'll he'll just start saying stuff. It's almost like talking in tongues or something. Huh. And uh, so, you know, I kind of have the control at the beginning to get the ball rolling. And then it's, to me, it's my job to, to kind of let go of the rain sometimes. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, so, I mean, in almost every song, there is that aspect where he just comes up with this, you know, rabbit out of the hat. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's cool. Well, so know, I hope it's coming across, as, you know, how much... These songs are John Hadley's, and if yeah. you look around, there's a whole bunch of people that write with John. Yeah. He's kind yeah. of a—he's the original fly on the wall, man. He's—he's he's a piece of work. Um, well, I want to ask you. This, this is sort of uh, semi going back in time, but also bringing us back to the present. You recorded a, a song on your 2010 album *Dutchman's Curve* called "You Never Know." Is she for real, or is she faking? Is she a rumor? Is she a fact? Is she smoke? Smoke and mirror? You never know. That became the title and the theme song to a, a weekly live webcast series that you've been doing for a good while now. Um, tell us about that concept and, and how it began, and, and in a broader sense, um, in what ways the internet and changing technologies have kind of informed your engagement with your fans. Well, if it were up to me, I never would have done it, and I'd still be, you know, making recordings that are carved in stone or something. Hmm. Or, <clears throat> yeah, I'm just I'm not a techno technological kind of person, but right. my manager is good about it. And she said, you know, she somebody else was had some kind of weekly show. She you know, let's try it. And I was I don't want to turn it into a whining old old <laughs> fart. Right. Ah, no, I don't want to do that. Right. But no, I'll try it. Just try it. And then originally, I tried to make it a one-man variety show where I was sort of interviewing invisible people, and <laughs> I don't know. There was, there, are, there are archives. If you go back to the very first shows, they're very strange, but <laughs> I just couldn't do that. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I thought, you know, I've got to simplify this. So I thought I'll just base it around picking out a song and talk, playing it and talking about what I was thinking about it when I wrote it right oh, right and it just the other part that was hard was just you're not actually talking to anybody you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my manager is holding the camera the the phone yeah and uh you're talking to people that you can't see and that was yeah. a little strange yeah yeah but the, but the, i just got comfortable with it and now it's it's kind of just thinking out loud to me now yeah i enjoy it yeah, yeah. It's like a lot of the gigs I've played. <laughs> you know, it's just like there's nobody out there. Right. <laughs> right. That's funny. Yeah. More than that uh, that besotted, drunk group of people that you mentioned before. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, it's questionable whether they're actually there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, well, Scott mentioned uh, your new record, Don't Try to Fight It, and one of the real highlights is yesterday's news. the background on that song that i wrote that a long time ago it was really pretty soon after i came to nashville so it'd be you know middle to late probably late uh 1970s mm. and there's a club here in town called the exit Inn. and back then it was it was a smaller place and held about 300 people uh it was the center of the sort of alternate music scene right the country scene and uh, it was an exciting place. And I, one night I was getting ready to go over there and mm. uh, just about to cross the street and this newspaper, you know, blows by. And it, the image just struck me as very poignant. Mm. And I just kind of filed it away. And I think the next day sat down and tried to, you know, get to the bottom of it. Yeah, yeah. What is it with a song like that that, that you know, kind of makes you go... Mm, no, don't, didn't record it in the '80s. Didn't do it in the '90s. Didn't do it in the early 2000s. Now it, now it's its time. You know what kind of makes something like that come back around? I don't. You know, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't do it before. It's kind of a long song. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was kind of a problem. It nothing big happens in it. It's just someone thinking out loud, basically. <laughs> right. Uh, there were things that kind of worked against it, but I always loved the song. I always it was always a challenge. It was something that was not in my usual wheelhouse. Yeah, and and I you know at this point you know you th- I think back in those early days of being in Nashville, and I and I thought well you know I I want to give this sh- this song a shot. Yeah, and the other thing was uh, again my manager Mary Sack. When I was talking to, uh, she was doing most of the talking with Brock Zeman that was going to, that ended up producing the, the record, and she was just sending up songs and she sent up uh, a version of it. Yeah. Uh, and and he heard it and liked it, hmm. and that's you know if someone shows an interest in a song, I'll do it in a heartbeat. <laughs> right. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But you, the, so many of the songs are, are odd, and you don't know if they actually interest anybody. And when someone does show interest, then it's like, okay, let's go. Let's right, do yeah. It. yeah. That's when that imaginary audience actually comes into relief. <laughs> you know, you can <laughs> right. see and feel it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, very cool. Well, Don't Try to Fight It is the brand new album available now, and I know our listeners will want to uh, check that out. Um, so, David, we want to thank you for uh, spending some time with us today and taking a little... Uh, a little uh, walk through your some highlights of, of your deep and, and varied songbook. Uh, it's it's really been cool to have this conversation with you and and to you know it's inspiring to to listen to writers who have such a firm sense of 
you know, who they are and, and, and what they do and have such a dedication to the craft. And I know, um, a lot of our listeners like us, uh, are just gonna, you know, be, have their jaws open to listen to some of, some of the <laughs> songs that you've come up with and some of the cool off the wall ideas. And, yeah. uh, it's just, it's just inspiring for us to, uh, to get the chance to, to chat with somebody like yourself. So uh, again, just thank you for, um, for doing this. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. It's very gratifying to talk to someone about all this stuff. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters.